Well, would you please join me in standing out of confidence that God will speak to you through his word, speak to you the good news of his son, Jesus Christ, and turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 14 is where we will be in our sermon study this morning. It will be useful to you, and it will also be useful for me, for you to have a Bible open and in front of you as we study God's Word together, so you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you and turn to our text, which is found on page 874. One of the unique things about preaching through a gospel in the Bible is how you balance certain pastoral tensions that you find in the Gospels. Unique tensions, I think, you find in the Gospels. For example, when you come to the teachings of Jesus Christ, as we have devoted our attention to in the last few months in the Gospel of Luke, you come to continual teachings that warn against assuming you are in the kingdom. So, so much of preaching through a Gospel is about disrupting people's assumptions about salvation. But as a pastor, you want to do so in a way that doesn't destroy people's assurance in salvation. As though you're so disrupted in presumptions and assumptions that you no longer can be certain that you actually are a child of God. And it's tension that we've seen in recent weeks, and we find once again in our text this morning, which is just verse 25 through 35 of Luke 14. Things we need to balance appropriately if we're to see what we must. And so kids, as I read through the text, I want you to see if you can notice a phrase that Jesus repeats three times in 11 verses. So three times Jesus is going to use this phrase and it will be our guidelines for how we want to walk through it in the moments to come. So let me read the text for us and then pray for a time for God to bless our study and then we will begin. Now let us hear now as God indeed speaks to us through his word. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, and he was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And Redeemer Church, what do we believe about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we give you praise that your word does indeed stand forever. We praise you that you love us enough to warn us 
You love us enough to welcome us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray this morning that you would do just that. Uh, You would warn us away from assuming that we are following Christ when we in fact are not. But you would also welcome us into the assurance of salvation that is found in Christ Jesus alone. So help us to hear with ears of readiness and obedience. Help me to preach as your word says I must. Boldly and clearly, always aware that this might be the last sermon I preach and any of us ever hear. So help us to engage with the text with hearts set on eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Imagine with me a scenario in which a political leader is standing on a soapbox trying to drum up votes for his political campaign. And imagine this political leader says, if you vote for me, you are voting to lose your homes. You are voting to increase taxes. You are voting to lose your wages. You are voting to lose your family. You are voting even to lose everything that you love. Now who is with me? It would be a silly platform in our modern context to try to drum up votes on that kind of a soapbox. But there is a sense in which, isn't there, in our passage, that is exactly what Jesus is doing. Or maybe more akin to our passage this morning, consider a different scenario. You have a great leader who's leading an expeditionary force to bring urgent medical aid to that leader's followers. And to get there, they have to go through this treacherous mountain pass. And eventually they come to this dangerous point in the past and the leader looks upon all those that are following him at that moment and says, we are getting ready to go through the dangerous area and so it's necessary for you to unload your packs because you can't take all this stuff up the steep climb to follow. And in fact, you know what you might want to go ahead and do is send your final postcards to your family because in, in fact, many of my followers previously have died on the mountain pass we're getting ready to climb up. Which one of you are ready to go with me? In the same way, Jesus is talking to those would-be followers who had come after him this morning, talking about the demands of discipleship once again in the Gospel of Luke, and he's reminding all of us, urging all of us to consider the cost of following Jesus Christ. For there is indeed a cost to anyone who would come after Jesus. And I dare say in our text this morning, for many of us, we might realize that cost is much more expensive, is much more costly than we so often find true, especially in Western Christianity that marks our country. And so simple questions are meant to be asked of our hearts this morning. Have you bowed down before the cross of Jesus Christ? And if you have, are you daily bearing your cross in following Jesus Christ? And so you don't have to be something of an expert in the Gospels to know that when Jesus is found preaching and teaching before crowds in any of the Gospels, he can never be appropriately categorized as an attractional, seeker-sensitive preacher. He is always seemingly wanting to reduce the crowd that is listening to him. So high are his demands upon his hearers. So high are his demands upon his followers, which is reminding us that Jesus, of course, came not seeking fans, but followers. Not seeking mere spectators listening to his teaching, but wanting to enlist soldiers in his army. And so when Jesus is preaching before large crowds, you often find him doing 
two things, sometimes simultaneously. He's giving these compassionate wooings to weak and weary sinners to come to him, while at the same time giving condemning warnings to self-righteous religious people who assume they belong in the kingdom. And so when Jesus is preaching before a crowd, as he does in our text this morning, it's as though what he's wanting to do is sift out his hearers, to sift out the half-hearted from the whole-hearted. And so if you were with us last week, as our associate pastor Mark Belanger preached through the first 24 verses of chapter 14, what you would have seen is Jesus once again giving a couple of parables parable of the wedding feast, the parable of the great banquet. And what we saw last week is the the import, the the main teaching uh, of those parables uh, was that Christ's invitation goes out to many, many more people than just the religious elite. So you might think of the first part of chapter 14 as a teaching on Christ's grace, that his gracious invitation goes to all. It's open, it's free, it's broad, it's wide, it's universal. But lest you think that such an invitation is an invitation of ease and comfort, he begins to sift in our text this morning. Another teaching on grace that says grace is a gift, yes, but it's grace that comes with demands. And so the main theme you want to understand from our text this morning is you must count the cost of following Jesus Christ. And we want to understand exactly what that means. So kids, did you notice that phrase Jesus repeats three times in 11 verses? What does he say? You cannot be my disciple. But what you get in this text are three considerations. We might say three conditions or three cautions about genuine disciples. And what we want to do this morning is just walk through each one of those cautions, understanding what Jesus is truly after and what that means for would-be followers of Jesus Christ. So this is a text that is given to anyone who would follow after Christ. So you might be in here this morning and you're considering the truth of Christianity. Well, this is a text for you to understand what the nature of following Jesus, what is the true nature of discipleship according to Christ himself. This, of course, also is a text for anyone who is confessing faith in Jesus Christ, but whose whose life doesn't seem to match that profession with this powerful possession of spirit-filled and spirit-wrought fruits of righteousness. It's also a text for any of us, Lord willing, so many of us that are wanting to call people to faith in Jesus Christ, to recognize that this call is complete, this call is radical, this call is total in what Jesus expects of his followers. So caution number one comes to us in verses 25 and 26, and it's a caution that tells us to love Christ more than your relations. Love Christ more than your relations. So you'll see again in verse 25, Jesus is now on the way. We know he's journeying ever closer towards Jerusalem, and we're told that great crowds are hounding his steps. So again, you just want to set the scene. This is a plural number of crowds, right? It's just not a crowd. Luke is saying crowds are surrounding Jesus at this moment. We're also told there are great crowds surrounding Jesus at this moment. So it's a vast array of hearers spread out before him as he's getting ready to lift his voice and lift up some of the most costly realities of what it means to truly follow him. And so students, what you want to consider this morning as you, as you look at this text, is it possible that you might be just like many people in the crowds? 
You're among God's people. You're in His house. You're crowding around Jesus Christ. But your life has no real commitment to Him. You're in God's house. You're among God's people, crowding around Jesus Christ. But your life has little costliness for following Jesus. So look at the first caution in verse 26. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, kids, I bet your parents have warned you against using the word hate before. And if they have, they're probably very wise to do so. But here comes Jesus saying what? You're to hate your family. Even so, hate your life. This, of course, isn't the message you would expect to ever find on the radio waves of focus on the family, is it? What does it mean? Hate your loved ones. We, of course, need to know that for many of us today in the 21st century culture, the modern connotation that we have for hate is not exactly what Jesus is after in this text. This is something of a Hebrew idiom that's used for comparisons. You can even turn to texts in the Old Testament like Genesis chapter 29, Deuteronomy 21, Malachi chapter 1, which is quoted in Romans chapter 9, where God is using this language of hate by way of comparison. What Jesus is saying here is for true disciples, their supreme love and loyalty belongs to Jesus Christ. So supreme is that love and loyalty to Jesus Christ that it is as though they hate their family by comparison. It is as though they hate their life by comparison. So vast and great and high is this affection they have for Jesus Christ. You must hate your family, he says. You must even hate your life or you cannot be my disciple. And it's conviction afresh, I hope, for many of us right from the outset of our text. For which of us would honestly want to stand before the Lord today and say, we have such a an high and exalted love for Jesus Christ that we hate our family by comparison. That we hate our football by comparison. Prestige, politics, power, marriage, money, all of these things are as little in our eyes compared to the fullness of Christ and our affections for Him. That's what it means to be a true disciple, Jesus says growing into that kind of supreme affection in which love for family, love even for your own life, is secondary. It's subsidiary to this overarching supreme love of the Lord Jesus Christ. True disciples are those that love Christ more than their relations. The second caution, of course, comes in verse 27, which tells us to pursue Christ more than our ambitions. Look at what Jesus says in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, we've seen this before. There's this command about the nature of discipleship already in Luke chapter 9. Uh, remember, for a first century hearer of Jesus Christ, when they hear you must bear your own cross, they have a vivid picture portrayed before their mind. That's probably a little bit different than our own when we think of this call to bear your own cross. You know, Palestine, it was an occupied territory at this time in the Roman Empire. And the Romans reserved their harshest and most cruel form of execution for the worst criminals to die on a what? A cross. And so if you were in Palestine at this time and you saw anyone walking through the streets of your village, bearing the cross beam on their shoulders, what you knew that person was walking towards was what? His or her 
brutal death via crucifixion. And here comes Jesus saying, you're to do the same thing. And in the same way, he's not calling us to literally hate our family. We would want to say that although many people throughout church history have died a martyr's death, Jesus is not saying something here as literal as you must bear your own cross and be crucified on a hill just as me. It's one of his favorite ways of talking about dying to yourself, your ambitions, your desires, your possessions, your very self-interests are laid aside. It's the way in which he likes to talk about self-denial. Kids, what you need to think about when Jesus gives you the second caution that calls you to pursue Christ more than your ambitions. He's saying, reckon yourself as already dead. Now, some of you may have read a book before called Band of Brothers, watched a miniseries that came from that book by the same title, following this story of Easy Company and the 101st Airborne Division making their way through uh, occupied Europe during World War II, and in the miniseries, one of the episodes focuses on a private named Albert Blythe. When he parachutes into France, cuts loose his parachute, he's very much gripped and paralyzed by his fear. And later on in the episode, he's talking to another character named Lieutenant Ronald Spears. And he's talking about this kind of paralysis of fear that he had in a ditch when he landed in Germany. And Lieutenant Spears looks at him and says, you know why you were lying in that ditch, Blythe? And he looks at Lieutenant Spears and says, yes, I was scared. And Lieutenant Spears responds, we're all scared. You hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But Blythe, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you are already dead. And the sooner you accept that fact, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. All war depends on it. And what Jesus is saying here similarly is when it comes to following after Christ, all discipleship depends on reckoning yourself dead in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Self-esteem is laid on the cross. Self-righteousness, self-made religion, self-wisdom, self-strength, self-worth, self-ambition is all put to death in order to follow Jesus Christ who alone is Lord. So students, I've told you before, when you want to think about following Jesus Christ, you can't let things like social media platforms of Instagram and Snapchat define the nature of how to follow people. Because Jesus requires, doesn't he, so much more? For so many people throughout the ages, tens upon thousands of Christians dying a martyr's death, more literally having to bear their cross in following Jesus. But certainly there is a truth Jesus expects for every one of his followers. There is going to come a time in which they will experience some sense of hatred from the world. There will result in some sense of persecution, some sense of hardship, a requirement of dying to your own ambition. In life, And so it's why Martin Luther, when he was reflecting on this text, said a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing, is worth nothing. Or a more modern priest somewhat pithily said, if you want to follow Jesus, you had better look good on wood. Because disciples must bear the cross. The true Christianity is all about a costly cross. Have you died to self? What ambitions of comfort, security, pleasure, and power might you be pursuing that you need to put on the cross of self-denial in order that you might actually follow Jesus Christ as he commands you to? True disciples 
love Christ more than their relations, pursue Christ more than their ambitions, and thirdly, what we'll see is that they cherish Christ more than their possessions. Because notice these parables that Jesus says leading up to this third condition. Look at this first parable, this question he gives for the crowd's consideration. This question about a man preparing to build. Look at verse 28 through 30. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish... All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and what was not and was not able to finish. And the simple point is clear, right? You must count the cost of what it means to follow Christ. Lest you be one of those people that profess faith in Christ with your mouth, and when persecution comes from the world, you cannot persevere and you show yourself to have never been a true follower of Christ to begin with. And then you get mocking as a result. But you have this other question that he gives in parabolic form about a monarch preparing for battle, look at verse 31 and 32. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Again, you must count the cost, Jesus said. And more than you may realize, if you just kind of look at verses 28 through 32 once again, these two parables have sparked no amount of debate among the scholars and commentators as to what Jesus is really after in these verses. As I studied this text, frankly, up until last night, I was even wrestling with my mind. What exactly is Jesus communicating? Because there is an overarching sense in which he's saying, you must count the cost of following me, but he seems to be saying something more than that. The parables aren't exactly equal to one another. And I, though, want to make sure we don't get so lost in the details of what the parables might mean. To miss that overarching point is that true disciples must count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. Because otherwise, if they don't, what do they get in terms of the parabolic statements? They get mocking. They get destruction at the hands of a coming king. And so there's a nuance, though, I think that you need to see between the two parables. You have this parable about the man preparing to build, and the essential question there is, can you afford to follow Jesus Christ? The second parable, this monarch preparing for battle, is more, I think, can you afford not to follow Jesus Christ? Because there's something interesting in the second parable as it speaks about this king suing for peace, with the more dominant and strong king that is on the way. And I wonder if what Jesus truly has in mind in this second parable is more reality of the salvation that we're called to or even the judgment that will come upon us if we don't truly count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Because you might be in here this morning and you're a Christian and you have come to Jesus Christ. You've counted the cost. But you might be in here this morning and you're not someone that would call yourself a Christian. You maybe confess Christ with your mouth, but are far from Him in your mind and heart. What the Bible says is that sin that you are walking in, even this day of unrepentance and unbelief, is sin that demands God's punishment. That Christ Jesus will return one day on a white war horse, and He will be a king that comes to destroy His enemies. And what is necessary for you this morning is to sue for terms of peace with that king. And the good news 
of the gospel is he himself is that peace. He is not just the warrior on the way. He is the prince of peace presented to you now even through his word. That he is the one who truly counted the cost of losing all, didn't he? He laid aside his very rights of deity to come to earth, take on the form of a servant, was obedient even unto death on the cross, and that obedience is now your salvation if you would but turn from your sin and trust in him. Such turning and trusting means forgiveness of sins. It means eternal life in the presence of God, everlasting rest and righteousness from Jesus Christ. It, of course, means peace for those who are formerly at war with God. And what's interesting, too, at a certain point, is what follows in verse 33, this, this other caution. Cherish Christ more than your possessions. In some ways, it seems like a summary of what he has just said. Look at verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You do see the radical totality of it, don't you? It's not really just saying even possessions, although that probably is the immediate meaning. It's all of you must be renounced if you're going to follow Jesus Christ. One of my professors at the seminary that I just graduated from was born a Canadian and for a variety of different reasons about 18 months ago, he became a United States citizen. And I remember having lunch with him one day and he was just talking about his experience of becoming a citizen in our country. And he was recounting his study for it and even what he had to say when it became official. And he said, this is the first vow, this is the first thing I had to say as I was transferring my membership, if you will, my citizenship from one nation to another. He said, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. And kids, what you need to know is Jesus is saying we're supposed to do the exact same thing when we come to him. That we renounce every sinful authority that we have just followed. We renounce a right to anything that is ours. And the good news, again, of Christ Jesus is to place all that you are in Christ's hands is to place yourself into the only hands worth trusting so what Christ is doing here is calling us to a total renunciation of, of who we are. And understand how this works out. Your desires are now to submit to his desires. Your family is now his family. Your money is now his money. Your future is now his future. Your heart is now his heart. Your ambitions are now his ambitions. Your goals are now his goals. You renounce any sort of allegiance to your own authority to even sinful authorities in this world and therefore give everything over to Christ Jesus. Because if you don't, Jesus says what? You can't be my disciple. And just to kind of further paint a picture, notice what he says in conclusion in verse 34 and 35. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. So students, what do you think Jesus is after here talking about saltiness, right after talking about discipleship? In a reverence sense, he's calling us to be salty disciples, isn't he? That those who renounce everything, bear their cross daily, hate their life and their family in comparison to the love of Christ, those are those in the world who have a saltiness, a seasoning of the Spirit. 
that does much good for God and His kingdom here on earth. But those who don't do any of those things, even do some of those things half-heartedly, they're like salt that has no flavor and are utterly worthless for the cause of Christ and His kingdom. You see the warning, don't you? The warning that we must heed, that we are to count the cost of following Jesus Christ. Uh, earlier this week, I had to sign this contract. And it's just a short six-page document. But as you often find in such documents, there were certain paragraphs that we would refer to as holding the fine print, you know, that, that legal language that with great care and precision defines the nature of the relationship that I'm getting ready to enter by signing that contract. And Jesus is giving us this morning, as he's already done in the gospel, terms and conditions for what it means to follow him. And Jesus is giving us this morning, as he's already done in the gospel, those terms and conditions with plain clarity, isn't it? He is not a king that hides the conditions and cautions of discipleship in the fine print that you're often going to overlook. He front loads them in terms of prominence and importance, lest you miss them, and of course miss his kingdom as a result. So as we begin to close, what I want to do is just meditate on these twin realities that are present in our text as Jesus is wanting us to follow him with genuine purpose and resolution. So what you need to see, first of all, what Jesus is doing in this text, of course, primarily, Jesus is warning half-hearted followers. Jesus is warning half-hearted followers. Jesus is no minimalist when it comes to contentment and commitment for Jesus Christ. He allows no competing affections, not even your spouse and your children. He allows no competing allegiances, the possessions that you hold most dear. He's warning half-hearted followers. So kids, which, what you need to ask the question is at this point, what is half-hearted discipleship? What might that even look like in our context today to be a half-hearted disciple of Jesus Christ. So someone who proclaims Jesus with their mouth, who says that they love the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet the sum substance of the time spent with him is 90 minutes on a Sunday morning each and every week. It's someone that says that they are devoted to Jesus Christ, yet the only time that he's uttered on their lips is perfunctory prayers after or before meals each and every day. As someone who says they care for Christ, yet keep all their money to themselves. As someone who says that they cherish Jesus Christ, but on balance, the vast majority of the week is taken up with entertainment that is sinful in nature. And we can go on down the list, can't we? We probably don't have to be too terribly detailed in what half-hearted discipleship looks like. We know it when we see it. We know it when we're doing it. And the full import of the text today is you must be warned against it. Because understand the questions that come with each one of the cautions. Okay, you have the first caution. Love Christ more than your relations. The question then, am I loving Christ more than even my dearest ones on earth? The warning is, if not, you cannot be my disciple. Am I dying to self by bearing the cross daily? Or am I coddling, nurturing, self-interests and ambitions. If you're not dying to self, you cannot be my disciple. 
Are you renouncing everything that you have or keeping it mostly for yourself because it gives you some measure of comfort and security and safety? If you are, you cannot be my disciple. The terms, conditions, the cautions, the warnings and considerations and questions couldn't be more plain, could they? Jesus is warning half-hearted following after him because it's really not following after him at all. But what you want to see, I think, in this passage and where maybe even we need to land is the gospel thread of truth that's in there. As I was saying earlier at the beginning, when you come to Jesus' teaching, oftentimes you're coming to warnings and wooings. You're coming to comforts and condemnations. And what you need to see, Jesus is not just warning half-hearted followers. Jesus is also welcoming whole-hearted followers. Look back at verse 26. You see how he begins in this passage? If anyone, now students, you can underline the word anyone, right? If anyone would come after me, Other Christian traditions have used this passage to say it's only the religious elite that these demands are really for. Even the Pharisees and self-righteous religious leaders of the day said it was their religious elitism which meant they belonged. They assumed, presumed that they were going to be in the kingdom. But Christ, what does he do? He underscores if anyone would come after me. No matter your vocation, your relations, your age, your background, your ethnicity, no matter any of those caveats we might give. He says, anyone is welcome to follow after me. Because even this language of come after me, Jesus often uses it for some of the most tender gospel breathings in his teaching. So can you think of Romans, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or we read earlier in John chapter 6, anyone who comes to me will never hunger or thirst. Again, there is a welcome in this text. Anyone can come after me, recognizing this is what following me looks like. So let us end with the last word as Jesus gives it. Look at the end of verse 35. He who has ears to hear, let him hear punctuating point in Jesus' ministry of emphasis on a significant teaching. And that is where we have to land this morning. Are you heeding his warnings against half-hearted discipleship? Are you hearing his welcome to wholehearted disciples who love him more than their relations, who pursue him more than their ambitions, and who cherish him more than their possessions? Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are God who is merciful and gracious unto us in Christ. Help us, we pray, to, by the Spirit's help, not fall into any sort of assumption about our state before you, but let the Spirit even lead us now into renewed faith and repentance towards Jesus Christ, a pure commitment to follow him wholeheartedly, that he might be exalted in our lives. And so we pray that you would even do this uh, for our good and your great glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, friends, let us stand together as we want to respond to God's word by singing our hymn of response, which is, All to Jesus I Surrender.